welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm Anna Moyer. And we are here with Carolyn Hare. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Now, this is a big question to start off with, but can you tell us who you are, what you're researching, and a little bit about that? Yeah, so, uh, well, my name's Carolyn. I am a second year PhD student. Um, I'm in the cognitive developmental and brain science stream in psychology. And um, pretty much for my research, I look at multi-sensory integration, which is just our ability to kind of put information from a bunch of different modalities together into one perceptual experience um, in ADHD youth and adults. So that's kind of uh, where my research starts off with. I've been kind of interested in sensory processing generally since my master's, done some stuff with anxiety as well. Um, and some side projects I'm looking at are probably kind of strengths and weaknesses and stigma associated with ADHD and also how uh, sex and IQ might impact the diagnosis. Wow, those are a whole bunch of different areas. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about what you're currently researching and kind of uh, what you're, you're currently approaching? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm kind of just finishing up uh, a meta-analysis looking at multisensory integration, ADHD. And um, the general conclusion is that there's not enough research out there. So uh, it's a phenomenon that's studied a lot more in other neurodevelopmental conditions like autism or things like dyslexia, schizophrenia, but it's not really looked at in ADHD that much. Uh, but with ADHD, we kind of starting to understand that uh, there's some sensory sensitivities and sensory issues and things like that are part of the autism diagnosis, but they're not part of the ADHD diagnosis. Um, and they're kind of just more recently starting to be looked at. So uh, a couple of things that I was looking at, I found some gaps with different methods and the fact that there were no, no research done on kids and multisensory integration improves over like the development. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of take a couple of different approaches. Uh, so I'm doing an EEG study where I'm gonna be looking at kids uh, with ADHD and those that are typically developing, looking at multisensory integration. And then I also plan to extend that to undergrads looking at ADHD traits. So not um, like an actual ADHD diagnosis. Um, so I'm starting off with the kids and I'm gonna move on to the undergrads during the school year, hopefully. And I'm also going to be doing a um, behavioral uh, paradigm where I'm just going to take quite a few kind of standardized multisensory tasks and see how kids perform on them. Because I found some of them in the literature for adults, but there's like, again, no research in kids. So I thought I could kind of uh, translate that. And then my third goal would be to do fMRI, uh, but I haven't gotten there yet. So that's, <laughs> that's a later, later me issue. <laughs> Okay, so that, that's really cool. There's a lot of questions I can think of to ask just from that, but I'll start kind of at the beginning. So multi-sensory integration, can you kind of unpack that a bit more for us and let us know what goes into that? What, do, what does that mean for starters? And then how do you go about figuring out how that's used or how it's different in ADHD particularly? 
Yeah, so um, basically, uh, you know, a lot of the times when we think of sensory research, it's kind of like what you're hearing or what you're seeing, but not always putting those things together. So multisensory integration is just kind of putting these different sensory modalities together and kind of how our brain receives that information. So one of the examples that I often think about, because, you know, we've all lived through it, is that uh, picture that you're in a loud room and you're trying to have a conversation with someone. If someone's wearing a mask, it's a lot harder to understand what someone's saying to you in that loud room. If their mask is off, you actually read their lips. So um, in that case, you have the visual information and you have the auditory information. So it makes the perception more accurate and it kind of helps with that like disambiguation that needs to happen. Um, so you're getting more information. So like multisensory integration, um, there's this benefit in like accuracy and like how fast your brain processes the information than just having the one modality alone. So like just having the auditory and then not being able to see the mouth move. And I know that there's um, quite a bit of kind of comorbidity between autism and ADHD. So how is that gonna affect your research? Um, like, are you gonna be kind of accommodating for potentially folks who have both or anything like that? So our lab is largely an autism research lab. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not really, uh, I'm going to focus largely on ADHD, um, and I'm probably not going to take comorbidities to begin with, just because I don't think that there's enough literature out there to really understand the difference. Uh, we do have some work more like individual kind of sensory modalities, sensory processing patterns that kind of look at those groups, but still uh, there's still not a lot about the comorbidity. And I think that's something that needs to be kind of addressed, but I think we have to look at them individually first in, in order to not get overcomplicated. I have a question about what you said that there's not a lot of research in kids of how ADHD uh, happens. So I, it, I find that kind of strange because when you think of ADHD, I mostly think of little kids and they, they have too much going on and they're, they're crazy in school and, and they need help with that. So how do those two things go together? Like, it seems like it's, it's more of an issue with kids, but there isn't a lot of research about them. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's usually um, research in ADHD kids, but there seems to be this lack in specifically like multisensory integration. Ah. And um, I think that's, possibly uh, because sensory aspects were not really considered. A lot of the times what I see with studies is that they looked at autism first and then they added on like a smaller ADHD group or that type of thing. Um, so I think a lot of the times they just didn't really look at it. <laughs> uh, and there seems to sometimes be this disconnect from the like occupational therapy literature and the more cognitive neuroscience literature on how like sensory processing issues uh, may affect ADHD kids. Um, it's kind of a pattern that I've noticed. <laughs> you also mentioned that there are some other things that can affect autism and, or ADHD or autism actually, and their diagnosis like gender. Um, how do you want to approach kind of studying that? Yeah, so um, basically uh, what's kind of suggested is that um, there's a, this kind of uh, misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis in girls. So a lot of the times uh, they have the more inattentive presentation um, as opposed to boys have the more stereotypical like 
disruptive, loud. So that's what gets noticed by teachers and parents and they go and get an assessment. Whereas girls, it's more often to be inattentive and uh, more often have internalizing disorders like anxiety and depression, which may kind of, you know, make it difficult to, to see those symptoms. And if they do have the more stereotypical boy presentation of the disorder, then they're less like, like they're more likely to get diagnosed at that point, or if they have an externalizing disorder in conjunction. Um, so I would say too, the literature is also just uh, missing generally in like, um, like more gender diverse folks. So there's been some stuff that says in individuals with neurodevelopmental conditions, there's higher rates of uh, uh, gender nonconformity, but there, like, <laughs> I would say that there's not even enough on just like kids where it's maybe a little bit more simple to try and understand um, that it's, it's also hard to kind of look at that. So basically how I initially wanted to look at that is to see in girls and boys, if they're getting diagnosed at an earlier or later age. Mm. So if they're getting diagnosed, maybe uh, if girls are getting diagnosed later, is this because they're kind of being missed by doctors or that they're not getting kind of sent on to specialists when they should be? Uh, part of this research also comes from myself. I have ADHD. And I didn't get diagnosed uh, until I was 24. <laughs> so like about a year ago. <laughs> um, so it was, uh, I kind of had an idea for a while that I had it. Uh, but um, a lot of the times, if you're like good at school, they don't think that you may have it, uh, that type of thing. And that's also one of the reasons why I've decided to do the research that I do. Um, and the, the funny thing though, is I have the combined subtypes. So I have both the inattentive traits, but also those hyperactive impulsive ones that you think would have gotten me diagnosed when I was younger. <laughs> um, but I think there's also a role of socialization that kind of comes in. It's less expected of girls to like jump up and run around the classroom where I was probably like excessively chatty, but no one really like said anything or did anything about it. So um, yeah, that's kind of the starting area that I want. The other thing is uh, there seems to be this ratio a lot of the times in diagnostic literature, you'll say like 10 boys are diagnosed to one girl. But when you're looking at community-based samples and seeing how many people in the community actually like reach ADHD diagnostic criteria, it's closer to like three to one. <laughs> Uh, so three boys to one girl. So there seems to still be more boys that do have ADHD, but we're still missing a lot of girls. Um, and I think that there's this kind of like media frenzy craze that ADHD is overdiagnosed, overmedicated. And I really think that does a disservice to girls. And there's also this like increase of adult women who are getting diagnosed later on because they're starting to have problems trying to juggle everything and just it kind of got missed. That's really inspiring, especially since you said like you have ADHD. So can you talk a bit more about that? How have your personal experiences kind of inspired your research? Like, do you think that you have some certain insights that other neurotypical researchers might miss? Like, what are you bringing to the table having this, uh, having ADHD yourself? Yeah, I think sometimes it gives me a bit, bit of a like unique perspective. Um, and coming in, I kind of thought that sensory issues were never really 
understood or thought about that much in the context of ADHD. And I have a lot of sensory processing issues myself. Um, for most recently for the neuroscience research day, I did um, an art piece on like sensory overload um, and kind of how it feels to me when there's way too many things going on in the environment and like it's just overwhelming and you feel very alone and kind of isolated and overwhelmed. So can you tell me a little bit about how COVID has potentially affected your research and like how have you dealt with that? Yeah, so uh, COVID has affected my research in the fact that I largely do EEG research or behavioral, which kind of requires me to have people like in person. <laughs> a lot of people did translate their research online, but it's a little bit harder with sensory research because you have to have everything like very um, in a certain way, like it has to be the exact same lighting conditions or, or the same sound. So you can't always control for those environmental factors if you're doing the research online. So I didn't really want to make those uh, sacrifices. Uh, so it's kind of delayed my um, collection in a bit. I kind of just uh, moved all of my coursework into one year and did my comps. Um, <laughs> So I would have like just the rest of my degree to do research because I was like, I'm not going to be able to collect it all this year. And like, I don't know what I'll be able to do with that, especially also since I'll be doing kid collection, which was even harder to do at first than uh, like undergrads or something like that. So talking about your research methods, you mentioned early on uh, about multi-sensory tasks. Is that what you're talking about doing your research? And what are those tasks? Yeah, um, so a couple of them, um, I'm going to be doing, a lot of the time we call it a multi-sensory battery, I just don't like that term so much, <laughs> um, but basically it's these, uh, these tasks that will measure like multi-sensory integration, so there's two main ways that multi-sensory integration um, is measured, so there's uh, measures of like integration. So usually that's when you see like a behavioral or accuracy increase. So people respond faster, those types of things. And then you'll also have um, paradigms where it's more of like an um, illusion susceptibility. So like one of the most common ones is uh, the McGurk effect. Um, <laughs> so basically uh, the lips and um, so what someone's visually saying and auditorily saying is different and in some people you get this like fused percept so basically you get this uh, new sound that comes out but it's not actually what was uttered either way so um, it could be uh, like they say ba um, the one way and I'm trying to remember the other, <laughs> the other way, but it comes out in like da, which is not what was uh, said at all. So some people get that, whereas other people might pick one of the two. Um, so there'll be conditions in which like there's only auditory or visual. So you can kind of see the difference. There's another one that I'll be doing was like the uh, sound induced flash illusion. So essentially you're shown like this flash of light and then you hear a beep or you have two beeps. So if you have one beep, a lot of times you only think it's one flash of light. Whereas if you have two beeps, you'll think it's two flashes of light, even though it was only one. Hmm. And you can like kind of vary the number and stuff like that, but it shows how having this extra information 
kind of changes how we think. So those are the two main ways is the illusion susceptibility. And then kind of, they call it multi-sensory gain. So the benefit you get from multi-sensory um, stimuli above and beyond like unisensory. So that would be like, maybe if you're um, shown uh, like the word um, stop or something and you had to press a button or you hear it. Um, so if you, they hear it and you, and you see it at the same time, you'll respond faster than either one on its own. Mm -hmm. And so how would the results from, say, the light test differ between a neurodivergent and a neurotypical uh, subject? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I would say that I don't have enough um, background to know for sure. Like, uh, there's not enough background research for me to say for sure which way it's going to go. But for, for example, um, maybe you would have less uh, susceptibility to the illusion. So uh, most people, maybe a neurotypical person would say when they hear the two beeps and see the one flash that there were two flashes, whereas someone that's not, they might just, or someone that has like ADHD or autism or something like that might only see one. So it, it kind of, um, there could be some differences there or also with the multi-sensory gain, it could be that there could not be as much of improvement in behavior. Um, or there could be more of one. Um, like I know for myself, which was something that I was thinking about, I have to watch like TV with like subtitles and I need kind of that extra information or else I have really bad auditory processing and auditory filtering. So a lot of the times having some visual information is super like important to me or else I'm like, what was that? What did you say? <laughs> I have to ask like 5 million 5 million times. Like if you put me in a loud room and try and have a conversation with me, my brain thinks that everything is at equal importance and volume. And I can't, you know, tune into that one thing. So <laughs> having that inf extra information might be more beneficial to me than someone who's uh, neurotypical. That That's really interesting. I also use subtitles when I watch uh, shows and I think actually it's becoming more a mainstream thing, especially with our generation, but my parents' generation hates subtitles. Yeah. Like they're, they, they're like, why are you doing that? It's like, it helps. You can hear both. You never miss anything. So I'm with you there. Uh, that's a really good example. And that was actually going into my next question of what are real life examples of places where you're having multiple things at the same time? How is life different for people with ADHD outside of the lab and the flashing lights and, and the numbers? Like what, what happens in real life? Yeah, so one of the things I'll say is uh, always an issue in research is that it's such a controlled kind of environment that we put people in and we don't always as often ask people what their experiences are outside the world. I've seen some like studies kind of trying to touch on that a bit more, but it's a lot harder to do real time uh, things. So, I mean, my experiences might not translate to like what everyone else uh, feels, but I have a really hard time, like I was saying, filtering out auditory information. So if you put me like in a really crowded restaurant or something and you're trying to have a conversation with me, I'm gonna have a really hard time picking out what you're saying. If there's many other conversations going on, if there's music, if there's like, if someone starts saying happy birthday, you have lost my attention. Like I, it's uh, so, um, whereas someone that's neurotypical might have an easier time tuning into the person in front of them and like having that conversation. There's so many things that are trying to get my attention at one time. So it's really hard to kind of like filter that out. Um, I also find too, 
um, you can kind of get understimulated sometimes. So if your environment is kind of like not enough, I find that there's this like ideal level <laughs> of stimulation that works best for me. And, and, you know, you don't always uh, find that, but like sometimes that might be adding like headphones or that type of thing. And I think it also depends occasionally on the activity that you're doing. So I think uh, you're just not always as flexible and able to do things in as easy of a manner as some of neurotypical. You might have to try and adjust your environment um, a bit more. And I've also always been like, kind of a, a thought of the idea of why don't we make sensory environments more welcoming for like everyone I don't know if you've ever seen like things like oh we're gonna have like a um, a quieter day at the movies where we turn turn down the volume or like things for like grocery stores so they don't have the lights as bright and it's like they don't have music playing and I was like do most people like those things? I'm pretty sure that's annoying to most people. Like, I think if we took some of these practices and just made them commonplace, it would probably be better for most people. And like, if you think of kids, um, I used to, in, in uh, elementary school, I was in an open concept school <laughs> for uh, all the classrooms. You could hear everyone and it would get like so loud and like so overwhelming. And I'm like, if only there was a place to just go and like sit and calm down for a second where it was like quieter and nicer but I was like I wouldn't have been the only kid that would benefit from that I think a lot of kids would so um yeah so speaking kind of on that benefit um do you think that there are any specific recommendations that you'll be able to make potentially off the research for kids in terms of being able to deal with multi-sensory overload or I guess for their parents as well yeah, um, I think that one of the things is, is it's pretty in, like dependent on each individual. So I think it's first kind of asking maybe what that kid feels the most comfortable in. Do they like when there's a little bit of like sound going on? Or is that something that's completely overwhelming to them? Because it's going to really differ kind of um, person to person. It seems to be that there's more of these extremes if you're like neurodivergent, um, whereas like neurotypical people might sit more in the middle of like what their sensory comfort level is. Um, so that might be, you know, having um, headphones or something available for your kid if they need to block out like, no like noise canceling headphones or something like that. Or, um, you know, have somewhere the lights aren't as bright, like maybe changing light bulbs, you know, or something like that in, in your house. So I think it kind of just depends a lot on the, the individual. So I think just asking your kids what actually makes them feel happiest <laughs> and comfortable is probably for the best and not automatically assuming what's good for you is what's good for them because we all differ. That's really good. That's always good advice. Like, and everything is so individualized and it's good. We're recognizing that now too. Uh, it's also interesting. We said like, shouldn't everyone turn the lights down? It seems strange that we're like pushing everybody to the limit, right? Like why make the lights the brightest that you can handle? Like why, why don't we just have kind of in between? I like that. Uh, I want to ask a question about how ADHD is treated. And so they face these difficulties um, is it always behavioral, like giving them a quieter spot or, or putting on? Is there any medication that's used? How is this? How is that approached? Yeah, so uh, there's usually a combination of medication and kind of 
therapies. Um, so a lot of the times, like if you're to be more diagnosed as an adult, uh, usually medication is the first thing <laughs> that they're, they're going to offer. So like stimulant based medications are still like pretty popular. Um, and then some people, uh, there's other services that they can offer. Um, like maybe, you know, some type of therapies. Um, I see a learning strategist. Um, there's also ADHD coaches that exist too now that like specifically help with ADHD. Uh, but there's not necessarily the same kind of services that are provided as like something like autism, where, um, you know, there's a lot of more subsidized kind of like programs and strategies to help. Um, I think that ADHD treatment is still a little bit all over the place. Um, and I think that like maybe over time, if we develop better therapy <laughs> options that are more ADHD focused, that'll help. Uh, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not as familiar with all the therapies that are provided for kids. Um, that's, that's really, that's kind of cool to hear that they're like specific, um, like coaches and things like that. I think that's such a great kind of movement. Um, and you kind of mentioned that a lot of like female identifying um, folks with ADHD are more likely to also have depression and anxiety. And I think you mentioned that your master's research was kind of in that area. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so basically for uh, my master's research, I looked at how anxiety and ADHD together, and also uh, eventually I added on the sensory processing piece, how they affected like cognitive inhibition. Um, so basically, uh, one of the things you find is that um, anxiety almost in a way kind of balances you out if you're not paying attention, it's kind of forces you to focus, but then so you get these behavioral benefits, but that's a very stressful situation to be living under, right? So um, sometimes we'd find that uh, someone that had both high ADHD traits and anxiety traits would actually perform fairly well on the task, but that could be to the detriment of themselves. Um, so it's kind of, uh, but it's kind of things that are still just being looked at. Um, I would just say there's this one thing called the um, RDOC or research domain criteria. So it's basically a pro an approach that looks at things along a spectrum, but also comorbidities. It also suggests that we should look at things from like different you know, standpoints from like a genetic standpoint, from a cognitive neuroscience standpoint to kind of better understand mental health. So a lot of the times my research kind of looks, uses that framework. So it's not always just people that are like diagnosed versus undiagnosed because most of these traits with uh, exist within, you know, like a normal uh, distribution. So there's people that do exist without a diagnosis that are just subclinical that might still have challenges as well. Uh, so that was kind of always how I approached things is understanding that kind of continuous nature and the comorbidity that might exist. That's amazing. So as we're approaching the end of our interview, I just want to ask you, what has been the best part of your PhD? What has been the, the thing that you're going to take away from in your years to come from now? I really just have to say that it's really rewarding to be able to research something that you struggle with 
yourself and having that thought that maybe one day my research will have an impact so someone else that's like me can better understand themselves or maybe you know receive services that might be more beneficial to them. Uh, I just think that there's still a lot of people that aren't necessarily represented in research or media or anything out there. So I think that's probably what's rewarding and I enjoy the most. <laughs> that sounds like an amazing reason. And like going forward, what do you want to do at potentially research or um, in, in your post PhD days? I think I'm probably maybe going to go the more research and academia route, um, but I've tried to do a bit more outreach things lately, like I was on a panel for um, those with ADHD or learning disabilities or those researching them, talking to like kids and parents with learning disabilities or ADHD. And um, I think being able to kind of disseminate that information beyond just the academic circle is very valuable. Um, so maybe that's something that I would want to explore a bit more, but I really do enjoy research. So I don't want to lose that aspect as well. <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much, Carolyn. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Anna Moyer, and we've been speaking with Carolyn Hare. And this episode was produced by me, Emily Hutchinson. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM, and you can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your lovely podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and enjoy the rest of your day.